0: Minimum time, 60 seconds for any cartridge of local anesthetic. Time yourself, colleagues, time themselves. If you're ever giving a full cartridge of anesthetic in less than 60 seconds, it's a long time, trust me. A lot of my anesthetics take me three or four minutes to give, and Mm -hmm. I warn the patient of that before the time. I say, this is going to take much longer. However, when I take that needle out, my drill goes straight into that pulp.
1: I'm going to replay this to my nurse because <laughs> I'm that slow as well and then yeah. my nurse sometimes it they just like every other yeah. dentist I've worked with is just no. just, just no. give the damn no. injection. No. You know? Welcome back, Rati, to Articane ID Blocks Part 2. How good was part one thanks to Dr. Wayne Williams? What I love about bread and butter episodes like these is the engagement it gets from the community. So you guys, Rati on the Instagram at Patrice Dental had some really interesting things today. Like, for example, Coney Kony Caravotas we met in Brighton and also at the Finlay Sutton course. Hope you're doing well. She said that she has hasn't done an ID block since 2009. So that was 14 years ago. That is bloody impressive, right? Like I told you I do about one a month. Kony hasn't done one since 2009. She said buckle articaine infiltrations all the way. And there were loads of comments just like that about how we're all getting really good results with buccal articaine. But of course, Dr. Wayne Williams suggested that it's only really appropriate for single-tooth procedures. But I know many of you, including myself, on many occasions, use it for quadrant dentistry in the lower molar area. Now I wouldn't use it, like I said in the previous episode, of people with large bones, large heads, big bony exostoses. But for the average person, I think it does work well. In my hands, and that's what it's all about. Don't change your technique if something is working well, unless there's more efficiency, more safety involved, or lower cost involved. But if you're not compromising a lot on those areas and something is working well in your hands, I wouldn't change anything about your protocol as long as you're safe, efficient, and cost effective. So, more power to anyone who's getting great success with buckle artercane. I personally will say that by putting it in the attached gingiva. Now, something that oh hey, it's Dr. Albert also said on Instagram is the importance of attached gingiva. I find that the attached gingiva retains it and probably by going in the attached gingiva I'm entering that call area that Dr Wayne Williams talked about in the first episode and therefore these emissary canals these holes in the mandible to allow our anesthetic to get in the right place. So if you're not getting good results like our colleagues are with buccal articaine consider putting some in the attached gingiva instead of just going super periosteal near the apical area and expecting it to diffuse into the bone. Like Wayne said in the last episode it's not as simple as that. One thing I have changed about my technique after talking to Dr. Wayne Williams is although I'm very slow with my anesthetic, I sometimes speed up towards the end uh, for a, a subperiosteal, which I won't be doing so much anymore. But I think the key point was just always keep it slow and reduce the pressure. Another thing actually I will be changing because a lot of things I won't be changing because it's working well in my hands. But a big thing that will be changing is as a result of this part two, you're gonna find it pretty interesting what happens in part two just have a listen or have a watch if you're on the app or YouTube to this part. I've got a few videos I've taken of me giving a lingual infiltration. And like, if I've done a crap job, and I'm doing something dangerous, Say it live on air. I mean it's we're not live, but you know what I mean? Say it on the podcast. I it's a learning thing for me. And I thought, okay, wow, I get to show someone who's so experienced and written about local anaesthetics, and I get to show you this video. So um please, if I'm doing anything wrong, I want to learn and I want everyone else to learn from if I'm doing something wrong. If I'm doing something right, please, please let me know as well. So a cool segment of this episode will be me showing you those videos, which I'm very excited and nervous about. So I actually show Dr. Wayne Williams the technique of giving a lingual infiltration, the way I have seen a specialist oral surgeon do it. The story is that I was shadowing a oral surgeon. And I saw him do this very interesting lingual infiltration, Where I thought it was at the time. And I've sort of copied him. Okay, so he's a specialist, he knows what he's doing. So I've been copying him and I've been getting, yeah, okay results. But I had this doubt in my mind, is this something that could be made safer? And is it really respecting the anatomy in the best way? Is there a better way that I could give this lingual infiltration? Do you remember way back when, if you're an original Protruserati, you might remember episode 37, that was in, that was three years ago, my goodness. Uh, we had Dr. Shaz memon on and what we did is, live on the show I got him to critique my website right Uh, and it was embarrassing because my website sucked and it still sucks because I haven't updated it right but it was an interesting and cool thing to do and I was happy to do it Uh, and it was embarrassing for me but it's fine I'm happy to put myself out there for you guys. Now I did the same thing here but with a really high quality clinical video that I recorded showing him how I do my lingual infiltrations and so the protrusive dental pearl is don't do what I did. The technique that I showed him is not a recognized technique and it shouldn't be used and even though that oral surgeon did it, Dr. Wayne Williams, whose opinion I highly trust, told me there's a better way, which that's why I said I'm going to be changing my technique. Now, I'm not going to just expose myself and embarrass myself willy nilly. This is only for Protrusive Premium members. So if you're on Protrusive Premium, you can see the whole bit where actually entire video, the same video that Dr. Wayne Williams saw, his reaction to it, and his feedback in terms of what I should change. I'm happy to make a fool of myself and share that with you guys. So if you're on Protrusive Premium, you'll get to see all of that. If you're not, then it's okay. I still love you. I still respect you. But you have to understand the feedback that I got in the video that I showed him was absolutely golden and well worth the cost of a Nando's
0: per month. And to give you a teaser, this is the way that Dr. Wayne Williams reacted. I'm sorry. I've never seen that described anywhere. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure it's needed. I'm not sure what the benefits of it are. Yeah, I'm, I'm not in favor of that technique.
1: So let's join Dr. Wayne Williams to continue on that cliffhanger we left you at at the end of part one. Should we fear the large-headed redhead? Is, is, it, is that a tr- true or false? Is that a myth or is that, is that real? Uh, and any strategies to help the large-headed redhead if it's true?
0: So... I'm not aware of the redhead, uh, the large I can kind of understand because it comes back to an- anatomy and physiology and understanding. And that's always my starting point on all the courses I present and all the teaching I do globally, it's always going and learn the anatomy, number one, then understand the physiology, then the chemistry, and then we go to the techniques. But it has to be in that order. Don't try and go for the techniques and then work your way back. You have to have the anatomy, physiology, and pharmacology behind you. But So there's, there's different ways I would approach a Redhead from now that I've heard you and, and Lincoln say that. And great program by Lincoln, by the way, with, you, with yourself as well. High respect to him. And, and basically, the guys I'd be more interested in for you and other colleagues in this country would be class three, people with class three mandibles. Well described in, I brought this textbook along because this is what changed my life um, 25 years ago. Just for the
1: listeners, can you just say the name of it for the listeners who are
0: listening? Sorry, because I know it's a turnaround. Hazards of Local Anesthetic Injections by Daniel Barnard. Same type of Barnard who who did the first heart transplant, possibly a family member. um, A a, a gentleman who I learned almost everything I, I know about local anesthesia from, certainly the hazardous approach to it, um, a valuable, valuable piece of literature. But basically, he speaks more about class 3 patients having a slightly higher lingula. And then certain um, racial groups, Chinese people have higher lingulas, uh, Asian-type orientations in terms of their lingula position is slightly higher. And certainly some of our tribes back in Africa have different positions and much stronger class 3 uh, mandibles and thicker bone of course and and of course you make your judgments according to that but often w- what people miss is look at an OPG if you've got an OPG of a patient you can actually see the lingula often on that OPG and you can then f- figure out from a cusp position in the mouth you take a cuspal measurement on the OPG say that the upper six and you measure that's 2.3 centimeters 23 millimeters then immediately you can then take your fingers and estimate at 2.3 millimeters put it in the mouth and say, right, that's where the lingula is lying up at that point, and then get yourself to go in. Just giving yourself landmarks, local landmarks. That is
1: a fantastic uh, tip that someone could apply, and that's that's very useful. So really, case by case, and so maybe not the redhead, we don't know, but you know, large anatomy, thicker cortical plate kind of thing, that may be a concern. But I guess the, the, the real clinical tip there is just aim higher because they probably have a yeah. higher lingula, yep. uh, and that is a real applicable tip. Yep. Now, we talked about anesthesia failing, and one of the reasons – I do a lingual infiltration is to prevent that, right? Now, you're probably going to say that don't bother with lingual, it doesn't work. Okay, that's totally fine. I'll stop my practice immediately if you, if you say it. But uh, what are your thoughts on lingual infiltrations yeah. to supplement and bolster your, your yeah. buckle? Is there any yeah. signs behind it?
0: So again, if you're using the mesial distal approach, then the lingual bro- approach be- probably becomes less utilized and less valuable. I think a couple of things with lingual. First of all, I, I, I'm not sure that I share concern Necessarily about anatomy in the lingual domain. So yes, we've got the lingual artery. I think the more bigger concern is the access to the lingual area. So you've got a tongue in the way, you've got a, a curve of Spee and curve of Monson with your teeth curving in and the lower jaw. So you're trying to get under something rather than with clear vision if it's directly in like that. Whereas from the outside everything's open. On the inside you're trying to get to the, your visual access to the lingual is always limited. Never mind your tactile and dexterous access to that area is extremely limited. So I think your ability to deliver drugs successfully in the lingual domain, certainly in the lower jaw, is, is limited. Palatally, in the maxilla, it's a completely different ballgame. I do predominantly palatal anesthesia. That'll shock you a little bit more. So I probably do more palatal anesthesia than I do buccal anesthesia in the, in the, in the palate. And again, you know, if I ever get to share some of my anatomy lectures and, and, and work we've done, um, it, it's unbelievable how porous the maxilla is. But to come back to your lingual, um, I'm not scared of the anatomy, but I am more concerned about access. So the only time I would ever go lingual is if I needed the soft tissue anesthesia as opposed to dental anesthesia. So okay. I, would, I would always use buccal infiltrations, as you've suggested, and I still think that's an excellent technique but it has to be using articaine. I wouldn't bother too much with the lidocaine, lignocaine, and I definitely wouldn't, 2% drugs, and I definitely wouldn't be bothering with a non-adrenaline, Mepivacaine, Scandernest, and others. It's just got no value, in my opinion. Um, mm. You need the 4% articaine for those.
1: Amazing, well, should we do the bit where uh, I'm gonna expose myself a little bit, and honestly, it, it, it's all a mentoring, it's live <laughs> Go mentoring. <for> it. Go <laughs> um, I'll show you it, and, and if I'm doing something silly, please tell me, uh, and I'm happy to learn. So this is the part of the episode where I show Dr. Wayne Williams my technique that the oral surgeon taught me for a lingual infiltration and he completely lays the smack down on me and gives me some valuable anatomy lessons which I pass on to you. So if you want to check out that as well as hundreds of hours of CPD and premium content which I'm constantly uploading month by month, do check out protrusive.app or on Android iOS Uh, but you can actually go and view it on your laptop as well. The website again is
0: protrusive.app. Let's continue with the episode and around proper inferior. I think if people are trained properly in the inferior alveolar block technique, we should be using that with Articane.
1: I I certainly feel much better today I'll speak to you about ID blocks in general I think and and, and you know because you see all the stuff that we talk about and uh, what's posted on social media and also in the BDJ etc people are dentists young dentists especially are more and more afraid of ID blocks but I feel I can tell you now I thank you so much because I feel much (laughs) better about it I I felt like I felt like this is the right thing to do to phase out of ID blocks you know I thought that was the right thing, but from speaking to you, I feel way more confident uh, about going back to ID block. So, so I thank you for that. Um, The the next question I had is adrenaline being avoided for certain patients. Is that a myth or are there some patients that we should be avoiding adrenaline on?
0: Very good question. And again, I think appeals predominantly to our younger colleagues, newly qualified colleagues. It's just amazing going through this talk today with you, Jay, about all the fear, I almost feel like we 're in a political arena here for a minute, but you know, there 's just all this fear mongering and don 't do this and don 't use that drug, and this will happen, and that will happen. Well, the first point about adrenaline is I think we lose sight often of kind of where we are with that it 's produced adrenaline is produced by ourselves in our suprarenal glands, our body produces adrenaline and tons of the stuff, much, much more than you can ever imagine to be in a local anesthetic cartridge. So we produce a lot of adrenaline. So nobody in the world that I'm aware of, to date, is allergic to adrenaline.
1: Yeah, I'd love to be a fly on the wall who told you that that I'm...
0: (laughs) And who's still breathing. So those who are not breathing, they might not be, but they might have been allergic to adrenaline because then that's what causes the problem. But... The truth is no living human being can be allergic to adrenaline, not one that I know of. So any patients (laughs) that do tell you that at any point, you need to probably run away because they're a ghost or something else. (laughs) So once you've told the patient that, I think we have to be highly respectful of the fact that a lot of patients will tell you that as a result of a potential vasovagal attack previously with the giving of adrenaline. And Mm -hmm. what will have happened there was the patient will have a vasovagal They'll feel faint. They'll pass out. They'll feel all the, the symptoms related to that. And at the end of it all, the doctor will go, the dentist will go, oh, I'm never using adrenaline for you again. That's what I used for this time. And the, dent, and the patient goes, oh, it's because you used adrenaline. Right, so that's where the problem starts. The next thing is almost all of those, almost all of those cases are intravenous or intraarterial injections. So because people are not aspirating and because aspiration mm-hmm. is so non-effective in almost all anesthetic devices other than the wand even all the quick sleeper all of those because they have a certain mechanical aspiration technique the wand aspirates from a foot piece so i take my foot off a pedal and the device aspirates every other device has to have a hand attached to it some way or another or a needle or a a lever pulling back so you're always going to have the potential for a false negative but the point i'm going to make here is adrenaline If given at the right speed, go and look back at the textbooks, how fast, minimum time, 60 seconds for any cartridge of local anesthetic. Time yourself, colleagues, time themselves. If you're ever giving a full cartridge of anesthetic in less than 60 seconds, it's a long time, trust me. A lot of my anesthetics take me three or four minutes to give, and Mm -hmm. I warn the patient of that before the time. I say, this is going to take much longer. However, when I take that needle out, my drill goes straight into that pulp.
1: I'm going to replay this to my nurse because uh, I'm that slow as well. And then yeah. uh, my nurse sometimes, they goes, adjusts, like every other yeah. dentist I've worked with, is just no. just, just no. give the damn injection.
0: So if your needle's in the wrong place, you're intraarterial arterial or if you're intra-osseous even, and you go in at, at speeds that these drugs are not designed for, you're going to have vasovagal attacks. And it's then when people go, and it is then when the adrenaline will play a role. So the yeah. adrenaline will play a role in those cases. It's less likely to be a problem. In fact, almost not going to happen if you're using Mepivacaine three percent, or you're using you know non, any kind of non-adrenaline drug. Cytanest and felypressin. We need to come back to separate point in a moment because sure. that's a whole different ballgame that I'm going to share something with you with. But the truth is, with um, adrenaline, given safely, given correctly, with good aspiration, making sure you're not intravascular. Given over at least a minimum of sixty seconds for one point eight milliliters of a drug. If it's a larger cartridge, as the two point twos that we have in this country, we need to go even slower, minute to a minute and a half. Then adrenaline usually doesn't play a role. Now, I have in my entire practice of thousands and thousands of patients that come to me from all over the world. I have two patients who I don't use adrenaline on, and neither of them are proven medical cases of not to use adrenaline. But I've experimented with that, if you want to use that word, where I've gone, listen, I'm the guru of local. I'm going to show you, Ah, we will get this right slowly and all the rest of it. And they still have some form of excitement or reaction. It's not a vasovagal attack, but they don't feel well. A lot of it could be psychosomatic. Yeah, yeah, I can't prove that it is or isn't psychosomatic. But in two cases, I say to the patient, look, we're going to use Mepivacaine, the nest 3%, no adrenaline. However, if you require a procedure that requires a long period of time that I need profound anesthesia and you're going to be jumping around in the chair, then we're looking at sedation or we're looking at hospitalization or we're looking at something else where I can then monitor your blood pressure and pulse rate with a pulse oximeter and I can make sure that you're not having some reaction to this adrenaline. But effective anesthesia it has to be, and I think that's a give. The takeaway from this concept is you have to always put good profound anesthesia ahead of everything else. Now even if that means that a patient has a mild tachycardia for 30 seconds whilst you're giving that anesthetic and you prepared for that, you monitor it with a pulse oximeter, the patient knows it's going to happen and it's all over and you can control it. And again slowly and small amounts but I'm not aware of anybody who genuinely can't have adrenaline What about Um, cardiac
1: risk patients or cardiac health? Because that's the the one where, you know, if someone's had a heart attack some time ago, they have a stent and then automatically we think, uh, avoid the adrenaline as
0: a a thing. Is is that a thing? Wow. Okay. so I want to just read something to you because this is something I'm faced with quite a lot. People ask this question. So I'm going to read you two things, if I may. Please. Cytonist. Is, is that something you'd possibly consider or we, would have considered we, we, in we, your we education? We have that, yes, absolutely. Okay. Uh, we we okay. were
1: taught that if they can't have uh, adrenaline because they're cardiac risk then maybe uh, give a different type of constrictor.
0: So, Chaz, I'm going to hold up four cartridges. I've especially got these ready for this. yeah. Now, yeah. two of them are the same thing. They're just articaine in a 1.4 or a 2.2 mil cartridge um, only because manufacturers run out, et cetera, et cetera. And then the other two are lignocaine, one in 80,000 adrenaline, and the other one is the Scandinest 3% Mepivacaine, no adrenaline. You will not see Citanest or Felipressin in my clinic, and you haven't mm-hmm. seen that for at least 20 years, at least the last two decades. And the reason for that is, and I quote, Felipressin, Citanest, is the active ingredient of Citanest, Felipressin acts on the venular side of circulation with no significant cardiovascular response. It can be seen as a less of a risk in compromised patients. That's according to respected colleague John Meekin up in Newcastle, Rob and Seymour in their book, Pain and Anxiety Control for the Anxious Patient. However, according to Robinson, Pitford and MacDonald in their book, Local Anesthesia and Dentistry. However, felipressin has been shown to cause coronary artery vasoconstriction and cardiac arrhythmia, and is thus not a benign alternative to adrenaline-containing solutions in patients with cardiac disease.
1: Well, I, yeah, I had no idea.
0: No cytosinus, yes, no filipressin in my clinic. Forget the risks it holds for pregnant patients. If you're keen on mm-hmm. delivering a baby, mm-hmm. that's, <laughs> use a bit of that towards what? the end of the pregnancy. That could help. <laughs> but, you know, the octopressin and filipressin in there. But the, the truth is, honestly, yeah, I would So, so only we don't want to
1: give an alternative in, in felipressin because of those reasons yeah. you mentioned. But in that patient who has some sort of a cardiac background, would you then also avoid the adrenaline by giving the plane? So, so there is I'd a, use, there yeah. is, yeah, fine. So yeah. there is a Scandinus, sort of, of
0: Scandinavian, yeah, Scandinavian 3%. So for a patient with a known cardiac disease... And there are a whole list of those. I won't go into all of those, but they're well described in the literature. But for patients who are genuine or recent cardiac, major cardiac surgery and you're having to do an acute procedure, (laughs) you're in a difficult position because what actually happens, and this is back to the point I made about effective anesthesia, is that every single time you hurt that patient by not having effective anesthesia or long-lasting anesthesia, their adrenaline levels go sky high anyway Mm -hmm. by self-induction. Mm -hmm. So their own body produces far more adrenaline into their body system than you could have injected. And therefore, they're having an adrenaline attack anyway, but it's just self-induced. So profound and efficient anesthesia takes precedent in our clinic for all procedures and should, I believe, in most clinics. Even if that means slow, careful, calculated deposits of adrenaline, if you're having to do a procedure over a long period of time. My point is, if you're doing a small DO composite, use your non-adrenaline-containing drug, irrespective. You know, you, you, I mean, I don't, I don't use it. I use articaine and lignocaine for almost everything. But on the occasion where I've had the doubt, yeah, I'd use that. But if a patient's coming to me for an extraction and I'm in a 50-50 doubt, they're getting articaine mm-hmm. in a controlled, calculated fashion. I'm just
1: in awe. Uh, I, this hour has oh, gone so quickly. Yeah. It, it was an absolutely uh, absolute pleasure to speak to you today, Wayne. You were uh, you were so hard hitting. You were so direct, uh, and you really uh, reassured me in a lot of the areas, with, which uh, me and the patrician had some misconceptions. And that is fantastic, Wayne. Please tell me, like you're 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 doing. You've done lots of teaching in the past. You're getting uh, into it again because uh, I know you got busy with clinics and stuff. Uh, where? Could, how can we learn more from you?
0: <laughs> so. Yeah, contact me directly, Jazz. I'm happy for you to give out my details. My email is usually the best way to get hold of me. I'm one of those guys. I get up at 4, 4.30 in the morning. You can always contact me between 4.30 and 8.30. But 8.30, I start with my patients most four days a week. But I do clear my emails on a daily basis, and you'll know that from your experience with me. But I clear my emails every single day. And um, if anybody gets hold of me by email, if you have my e if you have my mobile number somewhere, you're always welcome to contact me. I do in-house um, training courses for practices, but I, I don't what advertise. What kind of stuff do you
1: teach there? Like uh, Akinosi, so Akenosi, that kind of stuff? Yeah,
0: Gowgates the CIA, um, a lot of it around the wand, of course. But a lot of what I teach will be anatomy, physiology, and pharmacology. That's the, the basis of all the courses that I that I present. Well, Wayne, and, I, uh, I think any
1: practice is looking for like a team day, right? In terms of something for yeah. the clinicians, local yeah. anesthetic is such a, an underlooked at key but point. such a, a a key thing. You know, rather than sending your associates to a composite bonding, I think there's enough of that. Going back to basics, local anesthetics, So do consider giving Wayne a shout because uh, I just, I'm sure you guys have as well. Absolutely love this conversation. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, anything else you want to pleasure. add?
0: No, Jazz, as I say, you keep up your good work. I'm in awe of your work and uh, all your Pratusarati, I think is the term. I'm I'm very proud to be one of those. And please keep up the good work. And thank you again for the opportunity.
1: Thank you so much. Well, there we have it, Rati. I just realized at the beginning of the episode in the intro, I didn't even introduce myself. So if you're new to the podcast, my name is Jazz Galati, And thanks so much for making it to the end. That's pretty cool. Uh, Lots to be learned from that episode. Dr. Wayne Williams is full of cold, hard facts, which might upset some people because you've been doing things and they've been working. And then suddenly someone throws a bombshell of information, which kind of goes against your paradigm. But you have to respect the anatomy, the physiology and the pharmacology. But ultimately, remember, like I said, right at the beginning, it's what works in your hands. So if you're getting good results, and you're safe, and you're cost effective, and you're efficient, with LA, that's what matters, right? If you can do it in a painless way, all the better. So I'm sure you took away a few practice changing gems, but some things that you might just respect, but if because it's working in your hands, that's totally cool to continue the way that you've been going. Now, if you want to claim some CPD, then of course, you, as a premium member, you can answer a few questions and get CPD for this episode and the last one and hundreds of others. Otherwise, I've got a lot planned this summer in terms of podcast episodes. Uh, we're expecting baby number two. Gosh, by the time this episode comes out, it'll be a few weeks away. So wish me luck, guys. For baby number two, I hear it's twice the lows and twice the highs. So if I do go radio silent for about mm, 10 to 12 days, you know where I'm at. So my team's been very really supportive. We've got loads of podcasts in the pipeline ready so that when I get busy with baby, that's still your protrusive fix to keep you occupied on those long and lonesome journeys. Thank you as ever for being a protruserati and I'll catch you in the next one.